I'd like to welcome back Josh Crum to speak to us this morning. Although he was born in California and has bounced around to a number of different residences, he always seemed to keep ending up in the southeast Pennsylvania area. He has felt God's call to ministry upon his life, and he and his family are exploring church planning in the Lansdale area from God's Word this morning. With us, Brother Josh, come forward and share with us from God's Word this morning. Kind welcome, but I will say um, Jack had a present for me last week, so. Just saying, uh, did I take, no, you know what, there was, there was definitely a night where I could have. Uh, thanks for having me back, it's great to be here with you. Uh, I'm a huge Sixers fan, a little, just a little about me, any Sixers people? Yeah, just a little embarrassed to admit it, like I love the Sixers, I, I, I'm an irrational Sixers fan, I am a process trusting Sixers fan. I love the Sixers, and there's just something about going to a sporting event in person and just being there, being part of the experience. Uh, and a friend of mine took me to what ended up being the last game of the year in 2020 before COVID happened. Uh, and that was a unique experience because the game before that, we sat, game I had attended, I went with my oldest son, and we sat in the... Uh, Last row and like all the way in the upper deck, I could literally touch the back wall of the arena from where we sat. And at one point, my son's even like, is it, wouldn't it, would it just be better to be home at this? And it's like, probably, probably. Uh, But you know, you're there and you get to experience it. Uh, So then my friend invites me to this game and I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd love to go. I'm in. If there's somebody says you want to go, yes, I'm easy. Let's go. Let's do this. It was great. Um, And my friend had phenomenal seats, right? He had much better tickets than I could afford. I mean, he had, they were like 25 rows back, right next to the, the, the opening where the players run out. I mean, we were close enough that you could feel the heat from the pyrotechnics. I mean, it, it, the game, you're close to the game, you kind of can get a sense of how, like, you know these people are tall, you know their heights, like 6'7", that's tall, 6'11", that's tall. But then you get close enough and you're like, they are gigantic humans. They're huge. And it wasn't even just like proximity to the got us into with this laminated like pass that you wore that got us into a, it got us access to a special entrance where you didn't have to wait in a line. It got us access to a special elevator, got us access to the Lexus Club, which had all this incredible food that we could just like go in and get. I mean, it was, it was amazing. It's to the point where it's like, I don't know if I want to go back because I'm not ever going to get to do that again. And it's like, now I know what I'm missing. My friend had these great season tickets, and those tickets gave me access to something I could never have gotten access to on my own. And we're going to look at that idea this morning as we dive into John chapter 2, 13 to 22. I want to give you a little background so we kind of understand the situation that we're stepping into. Uh, it's Passover. In John 2, we, we read that in the scripture that it's time for Passover and Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Uh, this is where uh, every male that was able to would, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It's, it's the major feast. There's m- many significant feasts, but if you had to pick one, and this is a significant one, Passover, Jews have been celebrating since God delivered them from Egypt. And we read about that in the book of Exodus. In fact, when the Passover was given, it was do this. Do this every year as a way to remember They remember the way that God had interceded into their lives, had stepped into their story, had rescued them, had heard their cries and rescued them. And it's this picture of the 10th plague of the angel of death passing over 
the houses of the Israelites where they had marked the lintel of their doors with blood, with the blood of a sacrifice. It's an incredibly significant moment, and they're supposed to remember this, not just to remember for the sake of remembering, but to remember who God is, who he has been, who he has promised to be, his faithfulness. And so this has taken place uh, in, uh, around the time of Passover in Jerusalem, and they're building, built by Herod. And the temple is this massive, this beautiful, massive building built by Herod the Great, who was the ruler at this it was in time. It came from uh, an Edomian family. His father was, an Ed- it was from Edom. His mother was Jewish. And he is, he's the ruler. And he, Herod's significant for a couple of things, right? One is he was an incredible builder. In fact, there's a style of of building that's attributed to Herod, that's called Herodian masonry or Ashlar masonry. It's a specific type of kind of dressing of stone that really stood out. I mean, he built some incredible stuff, and he's known for that. He's also known for being a truly, truly terrible person who did some truly awful stuff. But he could build himself a temple. I mean, he built good temples, and so this temple was incredible. It's this large complex. We're going to show you a, a map, I'll just to give you a, of a picture of what this looked like. It's this huge complex, and to the left you see where the temple would have been, and, and these rooms and this structure, and then there's these sort of subsequent courtyards around it. Uh, you see the large courtyard on the right is the courtyard of the women, and then surrounding that courtyard was the court, what was called the court of the Gentiles, and around that would have been a large wall with a, with a portico, uh, and that's where, uh, in the Ro- sort of Roman style, where business was, uh, tr- was transacted and, and uh, things like that. So that's the context of the temple. They're headed up to the temple to do this. Uh, and why would you go to Jerusalem? Well, you'd go to make, uh, you go to pay the temple tax, you go to, and you go to make a sacrifice. Right? Passover is a picture of the sacrifice uh, of the lamb where the blood was put on the door as the angel of death passed over and they go to make a sacrifice to remember that and to a picture of the atoning of sins and people traveled from all over to come to Jerusalem and think about it like this traveling with the animal you would have to sacrifice wouldn't be easy right it wouldn't be easy I mean it, Particularly if it's a long journey, like your kids, you know, become friendly with it. They give it a name and then they're like, where'd Steve go? Um, so that would be, it's hard enough to make this journey. It's a, it's a hard land. And so there would be people, there'd be vendors there you could buy your animal from. Right? Money changers would, be, would have been in this area too. And they provided a valuable service. People gathered from all over for the important holy days, and because they lived all over, they used all sorts of money. Jewish males from age 20 onward were required to pay a temple tax, which went to the upkeep of the temple. And the tax had to be paid in in coins of purest silver. So two Jewish men would often join together to pay their tax with one tetradrachma. And I want to show you a picture of what that looks like. It's a tetradrachma, just a, a pure silver coin. And so the money changers were there to exchange people's regional currency for these coins while, you know, taking a fee for their trouble. So that's the situation that Jesus is stepping into here. But there's a problem with what's going on. And the way we see Jesus interact with this problem really reveals two big truths about God and about God's heart towards people. And the first thing is this. God draws the outsider in. God draws the outsider in. We see in verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. A little nerdy fact. It was 
Often you will see they went up to Jerusalem. It's because Jerusalem is high in elevation. And specifically, the Temple Mount in particular was among the highest points in Jerusalem. So that's a geographical statement. They went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he says, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Why was Jesus so upset? I mean, this is a feisty Jesus. There are times that we talk about Jesus and we see him as this like really mellow, easygoing, sort of Galilean hippie wearing sandals. And he's just like, just love people. Uh, But this is a feisty Jesus. So why was he so upset? I think he was so upset because at this most Jewish of times, in the most Jewish of places, Jesus is concerned for the outsider. Jesus is concerned for the outsider. Because what's interesting about this story is the issue wasn't with what was taking place, okay? It wasn't a massive issue with people buying animals for sacrifice. It wasn't a massive issue that there were money changers. We don't specifically see that people were cheating, that these vendors were cheating other, that were cheating the, the pilgrims that were coming in. We don't specifically see that here. Those were valuable things, right? Selling these animals, exchanging money, those were valuable things that were needed by the pilgrims that were making this trip. The issue wasn't what they were doing. The issue was where they were doing it. Because they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. So that, pl- that map we showed you with that, that surrounding area, that place had become filled with commerce. That place had become filled. And it was crowding and hindering the worship and the experience of God, but it was also affecting the Gentile experience of God. Because what are Gentiles? They're just non-Jews, right? And so even in the temple, the, the, the most holiest place for Jews, there is built a place for Gentiles to come and experience the worship of God, to see who this, this Yahweh is, that God's heart has been from the beginning for all people. And we see that. The Jews were meant to be a light to the nations. Through Abraham, God will bless all the nations, that God's heart has been to himself, that God wants to see people know him. But what we see here is that outsiders don't have access. Outsiders don't have access. I did not enjoy middle school. I did not enjoy middle school. I would not go back and redo middle school for all of the money in the world. If you're in middle school and it's hard right now, it gets better. It gets better, okay? Uh, my t- art teacher was the drummer at my church. His name's Paul. And I started taking drum lessons from Paul. Uh, and I didn't, like, I didn't know who I was at that point in life. Like, I was just insecure and, and nervous. And I, I didn't feel like I had any friends. Like, I just didn't know where I fit in. And so I started taking drum lessons from Paul. Paul's just such a cool guy. Just, just he was so cool. And Paul started taking more of an interest in my life. I spent time with his family. He took me under his wing and he mentored me. He introduced me to Mountain Dew, which I'd never had before. So much caffeine. Paul took an interest in my life and included me in. We went to go see, this is when I lived in Michigan, we went to go see a Detroit Lions game together. He He included me. He made me feel like less of an outsider. 
He moved towards me to, to draw me in. And outsiders need that because outsiders don't have access. By the def- very definition of the word outsider, they are outside. They're not on the inside. God is concerned for the outsiders. God loves the outsiders. Through Jesus, And God gives the outsiders access. We see that all throughout Scripture. One place is Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. But the significant phrase there is let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Let us approach the sovereign Lord of the cosmos, the infinite creator of all. Let us approach him directly with confidence. That's access. We don't have to go through 15 undersecretaries. We don't have to schedule a time. There are not layers of bureaucracy to engaging with God. We go directly to him. God gives us access to him. God wants people to know him and to experience him personally. And Jesus... Is that way. Jesus is the skeleton key. Jesus opens every door. Jesus removes barriers, and we see him do that here. Because what happens? Jesus goes in and he finds the stuff going on, and I think what we really need to, to do is sit in the story for a minute and, th- and think. Imagine what this must have been like. There's a lot of people. You have pilgrims coming from all over. So there's just a, a, a mass of people crowding this place, right? So a lot of people coming in to do this. And so you have, I'm sure, a lot of different vendors setting up uh, to exchange money or to to sell livestock. That was a large area. So it had to be enough to fill that and make it cramped. And so you have people talking and you have the movement of people. And then you have animals making noise. And you have money clinking around. And this was a loud, it was a chaotic place. And Jesus walks into this. And he stirred to a righteous anger. It says he made a whip out of cords and he drove it from the temple courts. And sometimes we think of that as like Jesus is just like lighting people up left and right. But I would say think of it this way. Jesus made a whip because it's, it, was a, it was a livestock encouragement device. There's a lot of animals there. How do you get animals to move? It's not like, excuse me, cow. Hi. Excuse me. Would you mind just... Just a little, just over here. So there's the noise of now herding them this way. So there's the noise of now animals or or, or people are yelling and shouting as Jesus is doing this. And there's animals making noise. And and he overturned the the money changers table. So there's money everywhere. And and people, in my experience, are super calm and like very well behaved and appropriate when there's loose money around, right? Yeah. Yeah. People be like, oh, that's not mine. Stop. Sir, you have a coin here. It just must have been absolute chaos. Absolute chaos going on. And Jesus is willing to step into that, to cause that, so that he can point out the brokenness of a system that is keeping people far from God, who God desperately wants to be close to. Jesus removing these physical barriers here is a picture for us of how he removes all barriers. How he's the ultimate barrier breaker. Jesus does that very thing for us, right? He removes the barriers that keep people away from the temple, that keep people away from experiencing God. Very real barriers that directly impacted the, the, the access the Gentile community had. And because of what the temple represented, access to God. And we find ourselves in a similar situation because there are barriers between us and God now. 
Some we have set up. Some we've allowed others to set up. And still others that are set up because we live in a broken world. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus breaks every barrier, crosses every border, transcends every boundary. What are your barriers? What are your barriers? You know, we dynamic revealed a lot of stuff for a, for a lot of us. We experienced isolation and disconnection and distraction. It helped us see that, man, there's stuff in my heart that was there the whole time. I just wasn't paying attention to it. But there's other barriers. There's past hurts. There's pain, emotional pain, physical pain. There's baggage. There's broken relationships. We can't see God for who he is because of an unhealthy relationship with a, a father or a mother or a boss or a spouse. There's injustice. We've experienced injustice, and that becomes a barrier between us and God. Because we go, God, if you were good, how could you let this happen? And we allow our circumstance to change our view of God. For others, a barrier is our self-worth. Our understanding of who we are. Feeling not good enough. This idea that we tell ourselves that we're worthless, that I couldn't possibly be loved. Now, not out loud. We don't look in the mirror and say that. But the, the story at the core of our being is I don't deserve to be loved. Those are barriers that we have set up. Folks, no matter what your barriers are, God invites us to himself through Jesus. Because God's heart is for the outsider, to draw the outsider in. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion with which I am familiar, is that it is not a story about how we, res- how we make ourselves right with God. It is a story about how God has moved towards us in the midst of our rebellion. There are times we like to think of life like, like a football field with heaven in one end zone and hell in the other. And we're standing at the 50-yard line, jumping up and down, asking God to choose us. When the reality is we are 20 yards away from hell, running as fast as we can. And a merciful, loving God chases us down to bring us back to him. Yeah. That's God's heart. He loves us because of who he is and what he's done. I want to paint a scenario for you to just help this kind of land a little bit. Imagine inviting someone into your home whom you've never met before. Right? They're a total stranger. You don't know them at all. You don't know what they're like or even if they're trustworthy. But still, you invite them to come live in your home and you treat, to treat your house as if it were theirs. And it turns out they're a terrible house guest. They help themselves to your food. They watch your TV. They use your resources and spend your money. They break your stuff and they don't feel bad. They're loud and disruptive. They wake you up in the middle of the night because they aren't concerned with being quiet. They demand so much of you and they give nothing back. They don't contribute to your household, at least not in a way that would justify your behavior. This house guest has done nothing to earn the kindness that you are showing them. And some of you might be going like, I don't know if I can relate to that. And I'm, you are a parent. Yes, you can. Because that's children. That's children. But what's the reality of that? I loved my kids before they were born, despite the fact that they had done nothing to earn it yet. They'd done nothing to earn it. 
Parents extend trust and relationship to children. They include them. They draw them in. They make a place for them. That is the very thing that God does for us. Moves towards us. All little kids do is throw up on your stuff and poop everywhere. And yet, if you're a parent, raise your hand if you're a parent. You know that feeling of looking at that kid going, I would fight someone to the death for you. You know, like I would do anything for you. That's God's heart towards us. God draws the outsiders in. But the story doesn't stop there because God's, I think we see another really significant thing about God's heart to the story. And it's that, number two, God draws the insider out. God draws the insider out. Because to those who sold doves, continues. Says to those who sold doves, he says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered later on that it, it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That this, this passion for, for God and for who he is would end up, I think we can see now in retrospect what they, what they understood later on, it would literally take Jesus' life. Says then Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Because what they're saying is, the possessiveness of my father's house says, all right, give us proof. Give us proof. If you say you have the authority, if you think you have the authority to police this area, then give us the proof that you do. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And in a classic case of missing the forest for the trees, they respond by saying, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But Jesus wasn't talking about the temple, right? Jesus wasn't talking about this building. Jesus was pointing to something greater. Jesus was saying, the day will come when this temple is not the place you come to interact with the Lord. The day will come when there will be a new temple, And and not a temple with these different courtyards where different people were allowed into, but a a temple with direct access for all that Jesus was really pointing forward to himself. Because, folks, God is not at a place. God is with a people. God is not at a place. One of my, I lived in Israel my sophomore year of college, and one of my, I'm such a history nerd, and one of my favorite things was talking with my dad one time about like, hey, where do you think the, where do you think uh, Jesus was, what, where do you think the, the hill of crucifixion was? You know, where do you think he was buried? And one of the, it does, as we were talking one time, is we realized, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because our faith is not now located upon a location where Jesus was. It's where he is not now. He's not there. I don't need to find the place where he was buried. You know why? Because he's not there. He's not there. That's what matters. God isn't out of place. He's with the people. And we see this thread that God has woven throughout Scripture. His, his, the redemptive arc of human history and the way he's moved towards people to redeem them to himself. That Jesus engages with this to point us to the reality that he is something new. The church isn't the new temple, folks. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new temple. Our problem, I think, is that we've gotten spectacularly good at building barriers. We've gotten spectacularly good at building barriers. Sometimes we care about the wrong thing and it alienates people. Sometimes we care about the right things, but we do it in the wrong way and that alienates people too. 
We can be far more concerned with having our viewpoint heard than in hearing someone else's. Folks, there is one truth that is worth building your life around, and that's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. One truth. I worked with students for a long time, and I noticed something that was interesting. Uh, Nobody sets out to build a clique to keep people out. You know, I didn't ever once hear a group of students be like, okay, listen, let's come up with a plan. Whose feelings can we hurt by intentionally excluding them from everything we're doing? That's a level of malice that I, middle school, I just, most people aren't thinking that way. What ends up happening is we can be so glad that we found our place in the world that we forget to be concerned with the people who haven't yet. We forget who we used to be and how much we forget to bring on in. We're so glad we've made it, we forget to bring others with us. The religious leaders in this story, that's what we see from them. They're the insiders who should know best that they were erecting these obstacles. They should know best that they were doing this. They were making interaction with God and the experience with God more difficult for those who were furthest away. They valued convenience more than experience. Right action mattered more than right heart. Religious piety mattered more than mission. That's an idea we've seen throughout Scripture. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fatter. These religious leaders laid out, God wants our hearts, not just our action. These religious leaders were getting the what done while losing sight of the why they were doing it in the first place. The what mattered more than the why, and there's a definition for that. That's legalism. When the what matters more than the why. The practice and the process mattered more than the purpose. But the harsh reality is that well-intentioned, well-meaning piety, well-intentioned, well-meaning devotion, well-intentioned, well-meaning religion without Jesus is still empty. It's still empty. The older I've gotten, the more I resonate with the Pharisees because the more I see myself in that. And it's challenging to look at that and go, where have I done that? Where have I done that? Where have I missed the forest for the trees? Where have I done that? Because the danger for us is that we fall in love with the means and the mechanics of worship and we lose sight of the object to worship. We focus on the process of how to worship instead of focusing on the object of worship. Think about these these religious leaders watching this, right? I think they had some reasonable questions like, number one, who is this guy? Like, what is going on here? What what is he doing? But I think an interesting note for us is why don't they have him arrested right here in this story, right here? Because I think it would have been well within their rights. Would have been well within their right. Why don't they have, have him arrested? Why instead did they ask him for a sign, Right? Why do they ask him for a sign? I think because something somewhere told them they couldn't just blow this guy off. Something somewhere told them there might be something to this guy. And so they wanted a sign. And Jesus said, hey, I got a sign for you. You want a sign? I got a sign. And he points forward 
to the fulfillment of his mission, the fulfillment of his earthly ministry, of what he'd come to do. To die on a cross, to take our place, to pay the penalty for sin, to be the once and for all Passover lamb. That he might also be the, that now the new and forever temple. That there is no more mediator between us and God. We can approach God directly. That Jesus, because he intercedes on our behalf, he gives us the rights and privileges that are his. We can be like those religious leaders. We don't like when Jesus challenges our status quo. We know there's something about him we just can't uh, reject outright. So we want him to prove himself to us, right? We ask ridiculous and selfish things because we don't want him to be who he says he is because we don't really want to change. We don't want to let go of control. A sign. If you just show up, God, I'll believe you if you just show me a sign. If you just show up in the way that I want, in the moment that would bend. But a God that would bend to my whims is not a God worth worshiping because that's not a God who's truly in charge. A God that says, fine, I'll do whatever party trick you want me to do is not a God that's worth surrendering to. We as the church are supposed to enter the world and to be barrier breakers. But often we're barrier builders. The religious community here built barriers that impacted outsiders and we do that as well. We unintentionally set up obstacles, making it harder for people to come and encounter Jesus. We add stuff to Jesus. We say to people, hey, if you're a Christian, you should believe this. Or you should hold this viewpoint. Or you should take this stance. Or you should belong to this group. We add specific ideologies and fringe theologies and political stances and personal preferences into the Christianity stew. And when we do that... We're building barriers. We're adding our own cost to following Jesus. And let me be clear. I'm not saying that truth doesn't matter. I'm not saying, no, not at all. The opposite. I'm saying that truth matters more than we could possibly imagine. But the problem is we add our own truth to it. We're adding our own cost when we do that. And there are some things, folks, that we got to be honest, that we are going to do as a church that might be barriers to people. Things like singing. Right? Do you know anyone else in your life that doesn't go to church that gathers weekly to sing with strangers? Not your one friend in a barbershop quartet. Right? Communion is a weird thing for people. Needing, the idea of needing a savior is a weird thing for people. But listen, we're not going to punt on those things. Those are core things. And so if there are things that people are going to experience as weird or uncomfortable that we cannot compromise on, then how can we flex on other things that don't matter? That everything is not of equal importance. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, For I delivered to you what was first importance. Right? What was that? What was that? That Jesus, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. And that he appeared to many people. What was the first thing? Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can be wrong about a lot of stuff if you're right about Jesus. We trust the Spirit to work in our hearts and refine us and make us new there. A few years ago, uh, I picked up a seasonal job because I love sneakers. I do. I love sneakers. Uh, and as I was doing the paperwork, the guy who was helping me do this uh, told me, he's like, just so you know, the discount here is obscene. 
And it was. Discount online. I mean, I got a discount in store. I got a di- like an even bigger discount online. Like it was, it was awesome. I just, I lo- they basically paid me in sneakers for the couple months I worked there. But the cool part is this. I could sign up my family members as well. Right? I could put my family members into this portal where they could all have access to this discount without me there. Like they didn't need me to be in person. It wasn't just my wife either. It was my wife, my sister-in-laws, my, my in-laws, my parents, my brother, my other sister-in-law. Like everybody could, could have access to this. It was a good Christmas that year. It was a good Christmas that year. I mean, it was pretty awesome. It took a little bit for that to kick over. And right? I worked there for a little bit before that changed. What's interesting is when my status changed as employee, my access changed. And I signed up my family up so they could benefit as well. I could have just employed my, enjoyed my employee discount myself. I could have just enjoyed my status as an insider. But I wanted others to experience this as well. That's why God draws the insider out. Because once we know what it means to love Jesus, how can we not share that with others? How can we not want other God draws the hope that we know. God draws the insiders out. And I think God knows we need that rhythm in our life. I think God knows we need that. Because for followers of Jesus, we need to remember that we were once an outsider, that God drew in through Jesus. We need to remember that we're called to love and reach out to those not here yet. We need intake and outflow. We need both of those things. The Dead Sea is on the shores of the lowest place on the, I guess the surface of the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the, on the surface of the earth. It's like 1,400 feet below sea level. And it's an interesting place because if you've ever seen pictures, you, you float in a really weird way. Like there's pictures of people can sit like their legs kicked up reading a newspaper because you're very buoyant. And the reason for that is the Dead Sea is 34.2% salinity. Now, that might mean nothing to you, so let me give you some some more context. The ocean is 3.5% salinity. Or even the the Great Salt Lake in Utah is only like, I think, 10% salinity. The Dead Sea is 9.6 times saltier than the ocean. Yeah. So what that means is basically, the reason you're floating is it's like a third solid, Now, why am I telling you about this? I'm nerdy and I want you to do well on Jeopardy, but there is a reason. The Dead Sea has no outflow. The Jordan River, you know, rivers pick up nutrients. They pick up stuff. They pick up debris. Just that moving water does that. And it flows down into the Rift Valley, down into where the Dead Sea is. And the Dead Sea has no outflow. And so what happens to every single that it's picked up over time? Just gets deposited there. It's got nowhere to go. The Dead Sea doesn't flow anywhere. So all the stuff that comes there sits there. And eventually it poisoned this body of water. As the church, our call is to be looking outwards towards towards our community. How do we reach people not here yet? Tragedy happens when churches stop reaching out because we need inflow, we need intake and outflow. We need both of those things. We need to be overwhelmed by the reality of who Jesus is and to be drawn into the presence of the living God. But also we need to live that truth out in our day-to-day life or it loses its reality for us. 
If you've ever seen someone you know or someone you care about or someone in your family give their life to Jesus, you know what I mean? Because that is amazing. It's amazing. And it reminds us, man, like that's why this matters. The church is not the destination. The church is a rest stop along the journey. For us as a church, it's like, hey, come, get refreshed, fill up, and then go back out. Because the greatest danger facing the church today isn't the atheism or agnosticism, and it's, and it's certainly not the antagonism of outsiders. It is the apathy of insiders. It's the apathy of insiders. So what does it look like for us to live that out? To understand that God draws us in so that he can send us out again. What does it look like for us to experience that? There was a movie about Desmond Doss a couple years ago called Hacksaw Ridge. It's just a really interesting story. That this guy was, uh, had a very strict, had a very internal kind of strict uh, uh, nonviolence vow. He was a Seventh-day Adventist and he's like, I, I'm, I can't take someone's life. But when he was drafted, he, he didn't want to be a conscientious objector. Instead, he became a medic. And though he was a willing participant, because he felt a great sense of duty, his time in boot camp was not easy. He was verbally harassed. He was threatened. Other soldiers were like, wait till we get into combat. I'll make sure you don't come back alive. He was ostracized. He was bullied. He survived several attempts to remove him from this unit because they thought he was a coward. Why wouldn't you fight? But eventually, by the time he reached Okinawa in World War II, he had been accepted by his unit. They knew that he, Doss was there for, for them and, and, and that he would come to protect them, or come to save them if they, got, if they were injured. There was a particular battle on May 2nd that was absolutely brutal. Absolutely brutal. These men had to climb this cliff that was 400 feet tall. And there were so many that were wounded. And Doss continually put himself in mortal danger to aid, to aid his fellow soldiers. He'd rush into harm's way and save the very men that, that had threatened his life earlier. And by May 5th, the fighting had intensified so severely that they were ordered to retreat and Doss refused. There were 75 men who were too wounded to retreat left. Doss successfully rescued 75. 75. He was wounded several times eventually, two weeks later, uh, by a grenade fragments and a sniper's bullet, but he continued to put others first. He refused treatment until others were dealt with. And we're going to show you a picture of October 12, 1945, President Truman presented Doss with the Medal of Honor. It's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. But you know why I did it? That's why I love it. It's a great story, but what I love is he said, I was praying the whole time. I just kept praying, Lord, please help me to get one more. When he rescued someone, he made it back to safety. And he could have stayed in safety, right? He could have stayed safe, but he wasn't content to stay in safety because his mission was, how can I bring as many people with me as possible? It's the very same thing Jesus calls us to do. Very same thing Jesus calls us to do. 
to reach out to others, to draw them in because of the way we've been drawn in. D.A. Carson describes it like this. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, natural combination, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they've all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. In John 2, we see the ultimate insider become an outsider so that those who truly are outsiders can be brought inside. How can we bring others with us? I want to leave you with a couple questions as we, as we close. One is, are you taking advantage of the access you have? If you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, are you taking advantage of the access you have? Are you engaging with God about the realities of your life? Are you talking with him about your hopes, your fears, your pain, your hurts? Are you doing that? Ask God this week, my encouragement would be, ask God this week to help you understand what are the barriers in your life that you may have been intentionally or unintentionally creating. Ask God to help you see where you may be creating barriers for others to experience Jesus. And what can you do this week to start removing those? What does it look like for us to live this reality out? Why don't you bow your heads with me as we close? Father God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for this hope. We thank you, Lord, that we have been far from you and yet you have reached out to us to draw us towards yourself, Lord. Father, would you remind us every day of what it means to be known and loved by you that we would never lose the, that freshness. And Lord, would you use that to compel us to reach out to others as you have reached out to us so that the people in our lives would know the same hope. Lord, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.